0: Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all of the days of your life. And I will put amnidity, and midi, something like that, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe with painful labor, and you will give birth to the children. Your desire will be For your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all of the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, from dust you are, to dust you will return. garden of Eden, cherubim, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life.
1: Thank you, Nick. Good job. Well, uh, before we hop into the, uh, the text for this morning, I just wanted to say that um, some of you may or may not be familiar with Convoy of Hope. Convoy of Hope is um, really a relief arm of our denomination, the Assemblies of God, and it's one of the more prominent um, humanitarian relief organizations in the entire world. Um, It's really sprung up over the last probably 20, 25 years. uh, And they do really, really incredible work. They're always one of the first organizations uh, on the ground in any major uh, disaster that happens in the United States. And uh, we know full well that any, uh, any resources, any monies that you feel compelled to give to that organization will go directly to very quickly um, to serving the needs of those in Houston who have been affected by this incredible flood uh, and hurricane so uh, I just say that to say uh, if you do feel compelled uh, to give anything to the relief efforts down there uh, it is probably the best organization you can give to and luckily enough they're a part of us we know uh, their leaders we know many people who work for them and it's a really great organization all right um, you can ask Ashley after church she'll talk to you about that all right All right. So uh, today we're continuing our series we're calling One Big Story, uh, where we're looking at the story of the Bible because we believe that the Bible, though diverse in form and structure, communicates one narrative. It communicates one story. And in order to understand uh, that story and to read the Bible well, uh, we need to look specifically at the different plot points that kind of happen throughout the story. In the story of the Bible, there are several big rocks. There are several big plot points that we have to cover in order in order to understand the whole sweep of what's going on in the biblical narrative. And in order to be a good reader of the Bible, in order to understand it well, we have to understand that sweep, that narrative Well, and to see ourselves even within the sweep of that very story. So, last week we talked about creation. We talked about the creation of the world, and we looked at Genesis 1 primarily. And what we saw about that is that God is the creator, and we learned a few things about the nature of God. And I'm just going to uh, summarize my points from last week for you real quick. Last week, we looked and understood that that creation communicates something real and true about the, the quality, the nature of God's character. And so what we learned was, one, that God was creative, and that should be no surprise to you because the world was... Created. Uh, the second, we learned that God is other or separate from His creation. So God and His creation are not one and the same. They're not the same thing. That God is in some real and true sense, that's one, uh, a sovereign or above or over everything. Right? God is separate from creation. And, th- and three, that God is all good because God created the earth good. And because God is a good creator, we can know that God, God's self, or God himself, is good. And this week, we are looking at the second major plot point in the story of the Bible. So the second thing that you run across in the Bible when you read it from cover to cover, the most significant thing that happens early on in the story is commonly referred to as the fall. It's commonly referred to as the fall. The fall. We talked last week about how God created the world good, that God's creating of the world good meant that God was good himself, but that begs the question if God is good and he created the world good, then why is everything so messed up, right? It it, it creates its own question for us. Why is everything so messed up if God, God's self, is good? If God is all good and he created the world, all good, why is there a massive flood in Texas, right? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why is the world as broken as it is? Why do we experience the pain that we experience in our day-to-day lives? Why? Why is, why is this the case if God is all good? And the Bible does have answers to this question. And but I think what we will see today is that the story of the fall that we, re, that we have read, that Nick so eloquently read for us, but that we will kind of delve into today is an explanation. But it's not just an explanation. It's not like we have a simple explanation for why bad things happen and we kind of just drop it in the middle of the room and walk away. No, I think the story of the Bible is far more sophisticated and interconnected than that. That we'll see today that the story that the Bible is communicating to us is uh, significant that, it, that it's weighty and that it and that it doesn't just tell us why bad things happen, but that it connects it into something greater into this greater or grand narrative that the Bible is communicating, even though there is a fall, even though bad things occur, even though there is struggle and pain and difficulty in our world I, I, I believe fully that the Bible it, while it communicates the reality of that to us, it also is pointing to something bigger, to something better, to something grand. And just a little fast forward in this sermon series and in the story of the Bible itself, it reaches, this story reaches its climax in the person of Jesus as Jesus uh, works out this, His plan of salvation to kind of undo or unwind all of the brokenness and the pain that we see in our world. And so today, what my hope is, what my attempt is, is to kind of tie in thematically the story that the Bible is telling about the fall, and then hopefully tie that into the person of Jesus at the end of our message so that you can see kind of some of the connections that have arisen between these two realities or these two ideas, all right? So this is what happens when a pastor tells you "Mm, 25 minutes ahead of time exactly where he's going to end up, all right? All right. You can leave if you want now. That's not true. I'll hold that against you. (laughs) So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 3 with me. Uh, It'll be on the screen. You can open up your phones and turn to Genesis 3. We'll be covering a lot of scripture today, so it might be good for you to have your Bible open so you can see the context on either side of the passages that we're actually reading so you can kind of see how these ideas flow together. It's helpful to have a Bible open to do that. So now just to set the scene for us of where we've been, last week we talked about creation, but there's a little bit of a backstory that I think is helpful for us until right before we lead into chapter 3. So in chapter 1 and 2, we hear all about creation, all about how an all-good and all-powerful God created space, time, plants, stars, humanity, all of it with a word of his mouth. Things are moving along very well in the narrative up until this point. God orders the world. He makes a lovely home in the garden for man and for woman. In Hebrew, the word man is just Adam. So Adam got his name from the Hebrew word, which means humanity or Adam in the Hebrew language. And God plants, in a sense, Adam and Eve in this garden. And he asks them to tend it, to be his image bearers, to be his representatives to represent him on the earth and to do what he does, to be his uh, God's, God puts man and woman in the garden to be an extension of his own character and purpose. So, what does he ask them to do? He says, Be fruitful and multiply, continue to create, right? He says, continue the kind of creative action that I began in creation. You are to be my emissary. You are to extend my goodness. You are to add order on top of order, right? This is what God asks Adam and Eve to do. And so Adam and Eve set off on this work. They begin to do this work. But Adam and Eve are also confronted with a choice. There's also a choice thrown into the narrative. Kind of randomly, to a certain extent, it comes out of nowhere. And it's found in Genesis 2 verses 15 through 17, and this is what that says. It says, The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will surely die. So there is this tension, right? Right? There's this tension that arises in the story. Adam and Eve are called by God to be his representatives, but they are also given a choice. And this choice is represented by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the choice that they are presented with is not just whether to eat a piece of fruit or not. All right? The, the, the choice that they are given is represented by the choice to select this piece of fruit, right? But it's far more profound than that, isn't it? It's not just simple disobedience. The choice, in essence, is to partner with God and find freedom by trusting in his knowledge of good and evil. Or they could choose to define good and evil on their own terms, attempting to rule the world as they see fit. And this is the choice that the serpent, this kind of shadowy figure that enters the narrative in verse 3 of chapter 3, presents to them as well. It says in in verse 3 of chapter 3, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? And right here, the serpent sows seeds of mistrust mistrust. And mistrust is a really important idea in this part of the story. The thing that the serpent tempts with is not just like a really nice-looking apple, right? The thing that the serpent sows that he tempts with is mistrust. The fall begins with mistrust of God's goodness, right? The serpent suggests that God's command was not given for human benefit, but was given to withhold some good from humanity. So the serpent says to, to Eve, particularly, "Is this what really what God said? God just doesn't want you to be like him, right?" That in some real and true sense, there's some type of mistrust. That the serpent is trying to kind of um, slam a wedge between God and Adam and Eve in a relational sense, right? He's trying to cause a a relational rift between the two of them and create between them this kind of mistrust This idea that, no, 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 you can't actually trust the words that God said to you. You can't actually trust the relationship that you have developed with God. That in some sense, God has um, an ulterior motive behind what he is doing. And you have volition, the serpent says in in essence. You have the power to go a different way, right? You you don't have to trust God. But God, notice what God said back there. In, in, in the garden. God asks Adam and Eve to trust him, doesn't he? In this eating of the tree, in, of, about what trees to eat from, about what they should do with their lives, about how they should order their lives around the purposes of God as opposed to their own kind of purposes. Now... There's often this misunderstanding that occurs when we read this text. And the misunderstanding is that we think God just gives kind of arbitrary rules over to Adam and Eve and asks them to follow those rules, and then when they don't follow those rules, he punishes them, right? This is kind of, in popular culture, how we think of this idea of the fall, right? But that's not it at all. God is not asking Adam and Eve to simply obey him. God is asking Adam and Eve to trust him based on his character and a relationship that he is building with them. Later in the narrative we see that Adam and Eve that God comes to walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, right? God has this continuous and kind of loving relationship that he is cultivating with Adam and Eve, and he wants them to trust him out of that place of relationship. He does not want to trust, he does not want them to trust him based on the fact that he's simply an absent lawgiver, that that he's going to drop the hammer if they don't obey. God wants them to trust him because he loves them, and he wants them to be near him, and he wants them to trust him because they've said, we've been near God, and we know his character, we love him, and we trust him, and we want to live life the way he tells us to live it. Does this make sense? It's a different orientation towards what God is asking Adam and Eve to do than simply don't eat eat from these trees, don't eat from these trees. If you do eat from that tree, you're toast, right? It's a different type of mindset. And Adam and Eve can so easily, and uh, people can so easily get caught up in this idea that God in the story of Genesis is just a lawgiver, right? That he's just a judge and that he's sitting far off. The story of Genesis depicts God far more like this gardener, right? This, this gardener who, who has his hands in the soil of creation, that has intimately formed Adam and Eve out of the dust of the earth, that has blown their life into them via his own breath, that there's something beautiful and intimate and close about the nature of God wedded to human beings, And the thing that the serpent sows into this story to get Adam and Eve to do something that they shouldn't do is mistrust of that relationship. Is mistrust of that relationship. You see, we see this played out all over the place, right? God gives Adam and Eve a choice. But the presence of a choice itself is not evil, right? Some might say, well, why did God put the tree in the garden if he didn't want adam and eve to eat from it well that's a good question i i would argue that love itself requires genuine love requires that 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 type of love that type of relationship be non-coerced or that it be genuine in marriage real love requires that both parties freely choose the other person right in, in any type of love, we don't want to coerce someone into a relationship, do we? My, if my wife and I were in a relationship and she was forced into it by, I don't know, her parents or by me or by something, and that, that would make our love, in some real sense, disingenuous, right? Because she would be forced to love me. I might be able to love her, but we wouldn't have real love in some real and true sense because... Because she wouldn't, her love wouldn't be reciprocal. She would just be kind of a party in the marriage, right? In order for there to be uh, mutuality, relationship, caring, and love, there has to be a kind of non-coerced freedom that, that both parties experience in order for there to be a real relationship, right? In order for there to be a real relationship, both parties need to be free to enter into it with their will, with their volition, right? Right? And so God putting a tree there is, is a way of saying, you're free. You're free to choose whichever direction you want. God is not, did not make robots. God made people, and he made people with a will and a volition. And he said to them, you're free to choose me or some other way, right? And Adam and Eve kind of chose, well, they really did choose, something other than that relationship. Choosing not to trust God in relationship, they chose something else. They chose to define good and evil on their own terms. They chose to define the world and the rules that they would live by on their own terms. They were, in some real and true sense, deceived, but they chose something other than this relationship, this this trust in God. In verse 6 of chapter 3, it says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So my kids love that word. Uh, <laughs> anytime I'm not wearing a long-sleeved shirt, Nora tells me I'm naked which is strange, uh, so, which is not true. So, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This story has been played out a thousand times, hasn't it? We are enticed by some desire, lied to by our emotions, and quickly come to find out that, that uh, the thing that looked desirable is actually a trap for our soul. And from this point, right on down the line, sin and death and pain enter the world. Because humans were never intended to set the parameters of good and evil for ourselves. We were never intended to do that. And from this point on, humans who were called to flourish within the world that God made, intimately connected to God in relationship, to live as his representatives... Humans that were created to, to flourish within the context, within the confines of this world that God has created, now choosing something else, uh, kind of unleash a problem in the cosmos. And what they have affected, what is often called the fall or original sin. Something, something terrible happens, and the wor- this beautiful, ordered world that God, is, that God has constructed and asked humans to be a part of is broken. It's broken apart, and things start going poorly, poorly. And so Christians have always believed that this original sin, this fall from grace that occurred to Adam and Eve, this choice that Adam and Eve made has kind of ripples through time, that it, that it has affected both Adam and Eve themselves, but is it in some real and true sense affected us as well, that it has that it has affected the lives of every human being that lives on the earth. So there are a lot of effects that occur. God pronounces curses, right, at the end of chapter 3. And these aren't curses in terms of God is actually saying, I curse you, I curse you, I curse you. This is more like God saying, here are the ramifications of your decision. All right? Sometimes we read curses and we think God is just dropping the hammer. But he's more saying, here are the ramifications of you choosing a different way, right? So what are the effects of this uh, original sin? What are the effects of the fall is the question. And how are we as people affected by it? So there are, like I said, there are a lot of effects, but uh, primarily I think there are two. And the first effect that we see in the Scriptures is a corrupted nature, a corrupted heart, or or a twisted heart in some sense. So this is what the scholar Stanley Grenz says about this. He says, Our human experience is clear. Although we, on occasion, do what is right and indeed live in accordance with certain aspects of God's law, our human nature has been corrupted. The source of our sinful attitudes and actions is not merely uh, the external environment. Rather, they issue forth from the inner core of our being, from the human heart. Now, this is a controversial statement, I think, because many people in our culture want to believe that humans at their core, in their very nature, are good, are good. But Christians have always said that humans at their very core, because of this fall, are corrupted, right? Right? In culture, we want to believe that humans do bad things, that they're corrupted by kind of external forces that come on top of us, right? That it's, uh, it's other things that happen to us that cause us to react poorly to those things and that that is why there's evil in the world, right? But Christians have always believed or understood that the evil that exists in the world is a byproduct of a corrupted nature, a misaligned heart, that by our very nature, we are not good, that we are not good, that we have a kind of twisted internal nature. And the reason people don't like this idea and the reason you hear this combated very often, you'll hear sometimes that so-and-so did bad things, but he's a good person, right? we hear this very often and i think the i think the desire the the kind of emotion that that this that this affirmation comes from is that really in our culture specifically a thing is not valuable unless it is good right and so if we say something is not valuable i mean if we say something is not good if we say if we say that the human heart in and of itself does not always lean towards the good that in some sense it has a lean towards uh, corruption or not good, that the human heart is in some sense deceitful, that it doesn't always lead us to good things, that the, that the pain and struggle and the, the difficulty we see in the world is a byproduct of a human heart that is corrupted, well, th- well, then naturally we have no value, right? Because we associate value with goodness. But this is not what Christians say at all, Humans are not infinitely valuable because we are good. That is not what the Bible says about the human human value. Humans are infinitely valuable because we are loved by God, right? We are not valuable because we are in and of ourselves good. And thank God that that is the case. Because if my love came from my being good, then I would not be very loved, correct? Correct? Christian, the, Christianity views humans as both unimaginably valuable and irreparably broken. This is, what, this is what Christians have always believed about the human heart. And this is important because it, it is only if this is true that it makes sense that Jesus would come to us. Only if this reality is, is true, that we are unimaginably valuable and irreparably broken. Does it make sense that Jesus would come to us? If humanity is inherently good, then we just need a little good behavior, right? We just need a little behavior modification, and then the, the inherent goodness that is within us will win the day, and we're all great, right? We just need some rules. We just need some parameters. We just need a little behavior modification, and then we're all fine. If in, in our hearts, we're inherently good, And uh, if humanity is not unimaginably valuable, then why would God in Jesus go to such lengths to defeat death and win our deliverance? You see, Jesus came because of this dual reality that we are broken, that we cannot fix ourselves, and that we are unimaginably valuable and loved by God. Jesus is coming to us makes no sense outside of those two realities. We see the first effects of the fall on human nature, that it has twisted and corrupted us, that we have been broken by the sin of Adam and Eve. And this is a problem, isn't it? This is a problem. We see it all around us. Don't skip over this fact. Don't skip over this reality that internally our hearts are twisted, that they don't always want what is best for us, that we can't always trust ourselves. We can't trust our own thoughts, our own feelings, our own emotions, because at times they are broken. And because of this, we are in need of something outside of ourselves to help us, right? This is what uh, the prophet Ezekiel says in Ezekiel chapter 13, verses 26, because the prophet felt this, and he, he puts words to this, and in, in in he voices the voice of God, I will give you a new heart and put a spirit, a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone, right? I will remove this corrupted nature that you have within you, and I will give you a heart of flesh. You see the tension that arises in the story, don't you? Adam and Eve have sinned, and something is broken in them, and now someone from the outside needs to come along and fix it. That they need fixed, or that we need fixed. But even though the situation that we all experience, this is a situation that we all experience. Because we all feel, I think, if we're honest with ourselves, in the depth of our being, we feel the ways in which our heart goes in directions that we don't want it to go, right? We feel the ways in which uh, we do things that we don't want to do. We feel that time that my default was to lie when telling the truth would have been a far better thing, right? We all feel that internally in our hearts. It's a big and significant problem that we experience Because of the fall. But if I'm being honest with you, I don't think this is the primary ramification of the fall. We might make it central very often the the brokenness in our world, the the pain we experience, the sin that we see in our own selves. It feels like the central thing, but I want to submit to you that it is not the central issue, and it's not the thing that the story of, of creation and of the fall and of Scripture makes most central. The primary thing that got broken, I think, is shown to us in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 3. It says this, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man, Where are you? Where are you? Now, I play hide-and-seek in my house with my children from time to time. I'm very, very good at seeking. There's nowhere they can hide that I cannot find them, right? I don't think Adam and Eve had a thorough understanding of whether or not hiding behind a tree would be an effective means of getting away from God. I don't think they understood very well. Do you think that God didn't know where Adam and Eve were when he asked this question? Do you think he didn't know? Did God know where Adam and Eve were? The cool of the day was the time when God would walk in communion with Adam and Eve. It was the time when he would come visit and be with them. Adam and Eve had been in this beautiful and loving relationship with God prior to their sin. And now this beautiful relationship was fractured. Before, they probably waited in anticipation for God to come and visit them. And now... They hide from him. They hide from him. And it is this disillusion, this falling apart of community, it is this brokenness of relationship that is the thing that is truly broken in the fall. Humans no longer walk with God in the cool of the day. They hide themselves both from God and, we'll see, from each other. The theme of broken relationships is carried right on down the line of this story, too. God's relationship with humanity is fractured when they rebel, but because of their unwillingness to trust God, God's order of things, and rebel, all of their other relationships begin to unravel as well. It's almost like God knew what he was doing when he set the whole structure of the world up, when he set parameters for the ways in which humans ought to live. In verse 15, there is enmity that is placed between this woman and the serpent, and enmity that is placed between man and woman, and their relationship becomes difficult, right? The relationship between this man and this woman becomes difficult. In Genesis 4, the two siblings of this man and this woman, uh, their relationship falls out of order when one of them murders the other one, the very first murder that the Bible ever records, in Genesis 9, echoing verse 16 of, uh, verse 17 of chapter 3, the ground itself is no longer at peace with humanity, and water springs up from the ground, right? The ground itself breaks. The earth, the, this relationship that God has with, or uh, that humans even have with the earth is now in some real sense fractured. Genesis 11, society itself begins to fall to ruin in the Tower of Babel. Right? Societies, whole, whole collections of humanity cannot get it together, right? And all of these relationships begin to fall apart. And so I would like to submit to you today that the primary consequence of the fall is not just our twisted hearts, but it is shattered relationship. It is shattered relationships. Broken relationship with God... And then because of that top priority is disordered, every other type of relationship underneath it begins to be disordered as well. Again, the, the scholar Stanley Grin says this, the first sin has permeated, tainted the world and has uh, irreparably altered its human inhabitants. We no longer know the world, our co-pilgrims, so each other, our creator, and even ourselves as friends. For community has given way to enmity. Adam and Eve choose their own way of defining good and evil, placing themselves in the center of the universe, choosing not to trust God in relationship. And now, all of humanity bears the consequence of these actions. We were born into a sinful world, suffering the consequences of the fall, we were born into a world where relationship was fractured, both between God and man, and between man and man. Thus, in so many ways, our primary understanding of original sin bridges all the way back to this first instance of broken relationship. Now, we have not inherited the guilt of Adam. Adam is guilty for Adam's own sin. But we have most certainly inherited the world that Adam's sin created. We do, bear the consequence, we do bear the consequences of other people's sins, don't we? Because we are interconnected, and so Adam's sin finds its way to us because of that interconnection. We are not guilty of Adam's sin, but we do contend with its ramifications. And I think if we are honest with ourselves, we all feel those ramifications in our hearts. I do. We all feel the way that our hearts and minds pull us towards things that are not good. We see the way that sin and the sin of other people has adversely affected our lives and the lives of those around us. And what is actually systematic injustice? What what is the dysfunction that we see in our world? If not, just the cumulative accounts of past people's sins coming to bear on us. This is what it is. A child born into an alcoholic family is not guilty of alcoholism, but they, they do have to bear the weight of the, the sin of their family, right? And, it, and we, in the same way, bear up under the sin of Adam. We, we endure a world that was created by the first sin. And so this is the story. Sin destroyed the community that God intended for his creation, and we are the responsible persons, and that's the, that's the hitch, isn't it? That we, we are the recipients of the sin of Adam, that we are the recipients of, of a heart that is, not, uh, that is not always perfectly aligned, but if we're honest with ourselves, we feel the ways in which we are also complicit in that sin, don't we? We feel the ways in which we have broken relationship with other people. We feel the ways in which our own sin has led us away from the good and towards something else. We, we all, in our most honest moments, feel the ways in which our own brokenness has affected other people negatively, right? Right? We all feel the ways in which our own sin has not contributed to the health and the flourishing of the world. We, have, we all feel the ways in which we have contributed to this problem, if we're being honest with ourselves. Very often we do like to lie to ourselves and tell our own hearts that we, uh, we're, we're good people, that we, that we have done everything we need to do, right? But if we're honest with ourselves, I really do think that we can say that we are in some way complicit in this sin. And so this is the problem. This is the problem we're all saddled with. This is the struggle that we endure. But it's important to understand what the problem is, isn't it? Because until you get a diagnosis, you cannot get to a cure. This is why doctors actually try to figure out what's wrong with you before they just start prescribing medication, right? Because it's important that we know what the problem is. In Genesis 14, we see God make this first move back towards the restoration of relationship with humanity when he calls Abraham out from, the, out from humanity. We see God begin this process so that we have creation. We have this beautiful creation that God created good. We have the fall. We have this, this severing of relationship between God and man and, the, and the, all of the ramifications of that occurrence. And then the next part of the story, the part we're going to talk about a little bit more next week, is when God makes that first grand move back towards humanity, when he calls Abraham, when he, when he selects Abraham out to be... Uh, the first among his people. You see, this is a problem, isn't it? This is a problem that needs solving this sin and death problem, this problem that occurred, this relation the severed relationship problem that occurred with Adam and Eve. And Paul is quite clear about the the brokenness of our of our hearts in First Corinthians. Uh, chapter fifteen, verses twenty through twenty-two. But what he does here is very interesting too, because he doesn't just say you're uh, you're irreparably broken, but he also uh, he also provides us with what the what the cure is to this brokenness. He says this. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man for as adam for as in adam all died so in christ all will be made alive you see over and over in the new testament we see this picture of jesus as the second adam it's not it's no surprise that when jesus is resurrected uh, the first people who see him look and they they see him and they don't realize who it is and they say it must be the gardener, right? That Jesus is resurrected in a garden, and he's confused for a gardener. Surprise, surprise. That in some real way, Jesus is remaking the world that was broken in Adam. Jesus comes to the earth. He fulfills the call, the promise that that was placed on Adam to follow God, to listen to God, to do only what he hears God telling him to do, right? He he chooses not to he chooses not to take the, the fruit in essence. He chooses not to go his own way, but he chooses in obedience to follow the way of God. And he steps into the place of Adam. He, he remakes this story again. He relives it in a sense. He rewalks it out. And in his choosing to die... Rather than, rather than take power for himself and make things the way he would want them to be, by, by choosing to die and submit himself to the will of the Father. In some, in some way, Jesus unlocks the key, right? He unlocks the door that was slammed shut when Adam disobeyed, when Adam sinned, and he opens up possibility again for you and I to be given new hearts, for that tw- the twist the twist that occurs in our nature to be straightened out for the for the brokenness we see in our own lives to be put back together this is what jesus does jesus is the second adam jesus is the one who puts the world back together jesus is the one who will ultimately it will ultimately be born out is the king and ruler of the universe but he is the one when we place our faith in him who frees us from the consequences of the fall. Now, we don't see this now, do we? We still live partial and broken existences. We still struggle with sin and death. But the promise of God is that when we place our faith in Jesus, when we follow him, we will be given a new heart. That the orientation of our hearts will change, that it will shift, that it will move. And that while we still struggle with sin, and the New Testament's very clear about this, that sin is not something that's done away with when we choose to follow Jesus, when we accept him as our Lord. It's very clear about this. But that we are given access into a time. We are given access to a world that is coming towards us in which Jesus is king. And we are all given the opportunity again to follow him. The sin that we feel so acutely in our own hearts and minds. The pain that we feel deep down inside of us. The ways in which we feel that our own hearts, our own minds are twisted and broken. These things can be and will be healed via Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus was the second Adam. And now he is in the process in our time of making us new of renewing and restoring our hearts as we partner with him, as we walk with him, as we learn to live into the life that he has made available to us through his death and resurrection. This is what it means to be a Christian, to in some sense undo the brokenness that was done to us by Adam's sin, by placing our faith and hope in Jesus and following him, uh, apprenticing ourselves at his feet, uh, of learning to follow him well. We can... In our, own, in our own lives, begin to walk back, begin to walk back the effects of the fall, begin to walk back the, this broken, this, these broken hearts that so easily go astray. This is what Jesus has provided for us, and this is what he asks us to walk in, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, We feel the ways in which our hearts go astray. We feel the ways in which uh, the sin of Adam still dwells uh, kind of in us in a real and true sense. And so this morning we ask that you would help us to continue to place our faith in Jesus that you would help us to see Jesus as the second Adam, the one who uh, would, will remove our heart of stone, in the words of the prophet, and give us a heart of flesh. Jesus, would you renew and restore us? Would you remake us? Would you recreate us in your image and likeness? Would you help us to not um, give in to that side of ourselves, That would rather lie than tell the truth, that would rather um, be angry and vindictive than be forgiving? Would you uh, heal those parts of ourselves that would rather hoard our resources for our own good than give it to other people? Would you heal those parts of our broken existence that are uh, more likely uh, to curse than they are to bless? Jesus, we believe that you are the source, the giver of life, and that in you there is a resurrection, both in our current existence and ultimately at the end when you return. There is a resurrection coming, and we want to take part in it now. Jesus, we love you. We ask that you would help us to love you more. We pray it all in your name. Amen and amen. All right, go today in the grace of in the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ.